Hey there, folks. Before we begin today's episode, I wanted to give you a heads up about an exciting event coming up. Our first ever documentary-style episode titled America on the Knife's Edge drops May 15th. Following that premiere, we'll be hosting a live QA session on May 16th where you can join the conversation, ask questions, and share your thoughts on the topics explored in the episode. Visit OutrageOverload.net to sign up for the event. I'd love to see you there. Okay, let's start the show. Welcome to Outrage Overload, a science podcast about outrage and lowering the temperature. This is episode six. widespread fear, most often an exaggeration of a perceived threat, often portraying a particular group or phenomenon as a danger to society. One of the most famous examples would perhaps be the Salem witch hunts, but moral panics are not uncommon. Back in the 1980s, there was a moral panic over the game Dungeons and Dragons. Good evening. Tonight we begin with a story about make-believe adventure and real-life violence, and what some critics fear is a connection between the two in a game called Dungeons and Dragons. Some parents believed D&D was the work of the devil, a gateway to joining a satanic cult. Despite there being no evidence for it, and fueled by fear-mongering epidemic in the media, this idea persisted and there was a movement to ban the game. We would like to see these violent games, such as Dungeons and Dragons, taken out of toy stores and not pushed in school systems. Moral panics have resulted from a variety of issues, including crime, drugs, immigration, and even new technologies, like artificial intelligence. The fear and outrage generated by moral panics can lead to all kinds of bad outcomes, most often silly laws and policies that do more harm than good, and sometimes result in discrimination. Here's author Victor Ray on critical race theory. Christopher Rufo, who has been credited by like a number of mainstream outlets as sort of the primary architect of this panic around critical race theory, which has led to banning books like Beloved from schools and, uh, you know, threatening teachers. Christopher Rufo's job before, he worked for the Discovery Institute in the like sort of like late 90s and early 2000s. There was a panic around teaching evolution in schools. The Discovery Institute was sort of a primary mover behind that panic. And their strategy there was to say, teach the controversy, right? So intelligent design, teach the controversy. Now, among biologists, there's not really much controversy around evolutionary theory. In a piece for time, I talk about this as, as I call it critical race theory's merchants of doubt. Like part of what they were doing is updating these strategies that they used for prior disinformation campaigns to politicize schools towards a kind of Christian nationalism. And they're now using critical race theory to do a very similar thing. 
the, the kinds of things that they're saying about critical race theory, structural racism isn't real, you're not going to find many scholars of race and ethnicity in the United States who say structural racism isn't real. It is a well-established fact in medicine, in social science, in history. Um, and so, like, this is, is this a moral panic. It's a, it's a disinformation campaign. It's important to note here that while a given moral panic may be exaggerated and irrational, the fear is very real. And we know what a certain wise Jedi master has to say about fear. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Celebrity voice impersonated. In June 2020, the American Psychological Association found that 83% of Americans reported stress over the nation's future. It's no wonder if you recall what was going on in the news at that time, with the pandemic raging, no vaccines, bodies being stacked up in refrigerator trucks, along with economic turmoil and racial injustice. And in terms of our stress levels, things have not gotten much better. The APA's 2022 study found 73% of Americans reported being overwhelmed by the number of crises facing the world. One of our brain's strategies to mitigate the fear produced by moral panics is to exhibit moral outrage. And nowhere is this more apparent than in social media. And that's what we're going to talk about on this episode of the Outrage Overload podcast. I'm your host, David Beckmeyer, and on this episode, we're going to take a look at some new research that presents a unique model for moral panics the researchers call the social amplification model. We'll meet a scientist who worked on this research. My name is Kurt Gray. I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I direct the Deepest Beliefs Lab and the Center for the Science of Moral Understanding. The basic model, developed by lead author Curtis Perrier, works like this. It starts with a perceived threat, maybe something like a tweet that says, there's a caravan of immigrants coming for your job. If that threat goes viral, receives a lot of retweets, that signals that the problem is widely recognized, and therefore a larger threat, or aka moral panic. That triggers our fear, and so we look in the toolbox and pull out that trusty tool in the danger mitigation arsenal, moral outrage. We blast out a tweet being mad at someone or something for this outrage. I got a chance to sit down with Kurt Gray to talk about this research. We should note here that this is a sneak peek of research that hasn't completed the peer review process. And I should say this paper is not yet published, um, and so everything I'm talking about can, can be altered by peer review. It's just a, a sneak peek. Now, let's take a look at this research with Professor Gray. Your, your paper defines moral panic in kind of specific terms that I don't think I've seen before. And there's a great drawing of it, but we can't do a drawing on the podcast. C can you kind of walk us through this social amplification model of, of moral panic and even just kind of describe moral panic a little bit to make sure we, we kind of understand what that means? Sure. Yeah. So moral panics are as old as human society. Right? I mean, as long as there's been people talking about morality, there has been moral panics. Dungeons and Dragons is one from back in the day, right, where people were uh, parents, I should say, especially were afraid that their children were playing Dungeons and Dragons and and worshiping Satan as part of it. Uh, they, they weren't, but it didn't stop them from worrying about things. 
And there are other moral panics that are authentic, right? That we should be worried about. So like the collapse of democracy, I think is a reasonable thing to be panicked about. And, and so what moral panics are, are people are afraid of kind of moral decay, right? Terrible immoral things. Um, and those things get amplified by society, that's the social amplification. And so oftentimes that, that society is other people you talk to or for larger scale things, the media, or more recently, for the larger scale things, social media, right? Where everyone's together on platforms like Twitter and everyone's talking about morality and uh, everyone's panicking. And so in that model, there are four steps. And the first step is just something bad, right? You notice you're on social media or watching TV, if it's in general media or talking to your neighbor and you notice or think about something bad, right? On Twitter, it might be a tweet about the collapse of democracy or uh, my wife's grandparents were worried about in Obama era about Obama stealing their dishwasher. It never came to pass, but it was something they were worried about, right? So that you just think there's some kind of threat. And then it gets amplified. And specifically it gets amplified by seeing virality metrics on social media. And so basically what you do is you see a threat, you look at the virality metrics, you see thousands of people are retweeting this, you think, oh my goodness, everyone's talking about this, it must be a real thing, it must be something really bad, and then you start to be worried, you start to get really panicked, right? that's the real panic, afraid, threat part, you think, oh my goodness, everyone's talking about this, I'm terrified, and then what you do is you need to find a way to manage that panic, and you think, what can I do? Well, I can't, I can't save democracy, right? I can't stop Obama. I can't stop Dungeons and Dragons. And so what you do is you express outrage as a way of, uh, of doing your best, right? To, to stop the evil people out there. You, you yell at someone, you write a letter to your congressperson, or you uh, write an angry screed on Twitter. And so those are the kind of elements of the model and, and outrage is the kind of end result. And you know, this is a, a podcast about outrage um, and there's a lot of it. And so this, this is what kind of drives a lot of outrage, we argue, right? There's a threat, you see virality metrics that make you feel really afraid about it, and then you express outrage to manage that kind of fear uh, or threat. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, and a lot of times, like, I'm glad you mentioned that the panic is kind of, you know, how legitimate or, or authentic, I shouldn't say authentic, but, you know, often we associate panic with, with sort of an overreaction. And in this case, maybe we're not always saying that. That's right. So as you say, when we think about panics, we usually think about like hysteria, right? And a word from his, you know, hysterics come from, you know, Freud thinking that his patients, most of whom were female, were overreacting, right, in some ways. And so there's this idea of overreaction, as you suggest, that's a little pejorative. But we're not saying anything about what's kind of justified or not. We're, we're talking as psychologists, really, about people's experience of the world and kind of how social media sites are, are made. And so, right, it can be about something legitimate, poisoned water in, in Flint. And there's some things where people should panic more about things, uh, and perhaps they don't. But this is just saying, right, that people uh, uh, are, are made more panicked by social media because of these virality metrics. Yeah. And, you know, and, and 
you know, an aspect of this that, that has sort of come up a lot, you know, as I've been sort of researching more and more uh, of this field and, and just the, the, the adjacent things and this idea of sort of punishment, kind of a retribution or revenge seems to kind of be really starting to be a theme that I see a lot more. And I've also seen it. I've been doing sort of these men on the street type interviews, I call them, where I'm sort of just talking to regular people and kind of getting their sense of some of these things. And, you know, you re I really get this sense of sort of a, an injury kind of feeling, like they were sort of injured and they want to kind of get back at the people that injured them. That's what sort of the, this fourth, the fourth piece of the, of the, of the fourth step there is this kind of you're expressing this outrage to sort of punish deviance, I think, is the language that you use. Um, is that original uh, from your stuff or, or did you kind of see that in other things as well before this paper? Yeah, that's a great question. So I should say all these ideas are my postdocs, Curtis Perrier. He's the lead author and really the architect of, of this paper and all the analyses, right? He's the brains behind this. And and I think the the punishment deviance is, I mean, it's kind of in the ether, right? So I think Curtis uh, and and I were kind of some of the folks who kind of like, you know, make it concrete and explicit, especially on social media, but certainly there is a sense that outrage is, is used to kind of punish, right? We talk about outrage of perpetrators, outrage of people on the stand, right? So I think we, we've long known that outrage is linked to this idea of punishment, but I think that the novel take of the paper, uh, especially when it concerns social media, is that this outrage is done to kind of manage these authentic feelings of threat or danger, and not just because people are trying to look better in the eyes of other people, right? There's a thing called moral grandstanding. I like that term. It's about trying to look good in front of others or you know, signaling. People do all these things on social media I'm not going to argue they don't, but I think what's been overlooked is just that people do actually feel threatened by what they see on social media. And when they're lashing out, it's not just because they're trying to look good to people, but because they're trying to manage their fear. Right. As you note, I mean, some of the, sometimes it is one of the other things, but as you say, sometimes that's maybe discounted. I mean, that's not quite the right word, but it's not as commonly um, cited as a, as a, as a reason, this more genuine, you know, it's not just, I'm not just, you know, virtual signaling or moral grandstanding. I'm actually legitimately um, or nervous or upset or uh, fearful of this thing. Right. And, you know, you're exactly right, right. They discount it. And I, and I think it's hard to appreciate how people can be uh, made afraid of, uh, of things they hear about on Twitter when we're maybe talking about it like this, but you know, I talked to all sorts of friends and colleagues who were like, I had to put down my phone. I was sitting in bed and your heart starts to beat, you know, you start to despair about the fate of the world. And all you can do is, you know, dash off an angry tweet as best you can. And we actually have some some data in the paper that shows that the people who use Twitter most uh, and pay attention to virality metrics when it comes to politics they have elevated symptoms of PTSD. You know, still still low. I'm not saying, you know, that there are people who have real trauma and, and it's different than than just checking your phone. But but they have elevated kind of, you know, trauma-based experiences right. from being on social media, which isn't a good place to be. So this connection between the virality and and the moral panic, I see it's there, but then I'm trying to kind of figure out what, what does it actually kind of mean to us? Yeah. So I think that 
the way to understand it is to take a step back and appreciate that we are a social species, right? So one of my favorite experiments done by Stanley Milgram, you may know the name from his famous obedience experiment, but Milgram also ran another study where he just had people stand on the street and look up, just look up like they're looking at something. And if you see one person looking up on the street in New York, you'll walk by him or her because you just think you're a crazy person. But you get you get five people standing together looking up. You're going to look at them and then you're going to look up, right, just to see what's happening. And so we take our cues from other people. And that's not just about looking up on a New York City street, but it's also about our morals. And out of everything that humans care about, morality is one of the things that's most socially kind of constructed and, and conforming, right? Um, if you, you know, I don't know, all sorts of things, right? Like you don't spit in a fancy restaurant because um, everyone thinks that's not what you do, right? That would be that would be a wrong thing to do. And so we use other people to kind of make sense of the norms of our world. And when we're on social media, there's explicit markers for how to make sense of those norms, right? We know if everyone cares about something or everyone likes something, right? If 100 million people, that'd be a lot, so 100,000 people like a tweet, we know that this is a funny tweet, right? Because like everyone's told us, right? And we'll think it's way funnier. Uh, <laughs> and if we just came up, right? We're just, you're going to laugh harder. It's true because like everyone thinks this is funny. I think it's funny, right? It's why comedians want to have a packed audience, right? Because you just like feed off the kind of like social energy. And it turns out that social media feeds off of the social energy in a different way. And that's when it comes to, to panic, right? So if there's 10,000 people that are retweeting, right, democracy's failing, or they're taking your dishwasher, or, um, right, you can't eat red meat anymore. I'm trying to think about, about some of the panics that, that have happened. And, you know, some of them happen so quickly, but they, they really mobilize people because it seems like everyone else cares about it. And so I should too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask about that. It says in the paper about um, that moral outrage is one of humans' best tools for motivating a collective response that can match these viral threats. So explain what you mean there a little bit by one of the human's best tools. I mean, are you saying moral outrage is kind of a good thing or, or what, what do we mean by that? I mean, it's a, it's a tool like any other tool. So you could use a hammer to <laughs> hammer nails. You use a hammer to hurt somebody. Um, and so I think there are cases where it is, you know, really good. Um, so if there's a company that is polluting something, I'm thinking like Aaron Brockovich, right? And everyone gets together and gets angry or the, the sex scandal in the Catholic church, right? Lots of people were really upset and pushed for kind of systemic change as much as they could. So outrage could be a tool for good um, and, and for social change. Maybe like Me Too or maybe George Floyd and stuff like that as well might be examples. Right. Me Too, George Floyd, civil rights, all sorts of things. Um, but but of course, it, it can also be, right, you can get an overload <laughs> of it as well, right? Too much outrage, uh, kind of poison conversations, makes us further upset. Just everyone's kind of screaming all the time. And so I think it's a good tool for coordination, but sometimes when when it's not useful, then just bathing in social or moral outrage can, you know, make us upset, eventually make, make us physically ill, 
you know, we know that stress does all sorts of bad things to us when we're chronically exposed to it. So in the long run, I think it'd be bad news. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that, yeah, then that kind of prolonged, just, you can't be outraged all the time at everything. You know, it's very hard. That's just not really sustainable. Yeah. And people get exhausted and then you can't coordinate them. Right. So we said like outrage is like made to coordinate if everyone's calm and then all of a sudden like there's one thing we're afraid about we get outraged about it and we all collectively agree to change it great but if every day you're angry about something then you know you're too tired to to join a math movement you can't you can't raise the level up any higher (laughs) you're already there right it's turned up to 11 (laughs) yeah so you know sort of a layman's uh you know um probably going to be dumb question kind of thing is I'm trying to sort of understand this cause and effect side of it. You know, the, I I get totally that like once something's viral, that sort of gives it weight and credibility sort of thing. And we're going to take it more seriously, but, or, or is there a little bit of the other way around that this thing is super outrageous? So it's going to cause more of, of, of the retweeting. And and I'm just probably not really reading that right. So. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Both effects are true. So there's been past work that's come out that shows that the more outraged something is, the more likely it is to go viral. So if you can say, hey, there was, you know, uh, an insurrection or there was, you know, some systemic um, sexual abuse. Isn't that interesting, right? Like, you're Okay, that's interesting. But if you like, I can't believe this. Who's with me? We won't stand for this. Right. Those those tweets are more likely to go uh, viral. But it's also the case that the that the other way is true. So if you take the same exact tweet and you change the virality metrics on that tweet, right, then the tweet that has higher virality that is more likely to express outrage, right, because it's this kind of like threat. Um, and so we have lots of experiments and also some of our, our data for Twitter show that when you control it a little more tightly, um, the effect works for virality causing outrage in addition to vice versa. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's funny, it's probably a self dilute, one of those self delusional things, but like, if you asked me, I would have said, I never look at that retweet number, but I bet I do. (laughs) You know, the social media sites design it to, so you look at it, right? Like that's, they're, they're trying to get you to be engaged and, and to, to amplify the kind of already loudest voices. And so I think they make it hard not to. Right. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, that's kind of a, a different paper, but it's it's the, um, you know, sort of where the, you know, there's this sort of encouragement to do these more outrageous things because that's what gets the the shares and the retweets. And that sort of scores you those those social that you get sort of the uh, whichever endorphins it is going the other direction. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a positive feedback loop, right? So outrage goes viral, virality gets outraged and the social media algorithms are emphasizing both of those things. And so it's like the mic next to the speaker, you know, it doesn't take, doesn't take long for it to get out of control. Yeah. Right. So, so a lot of, you know, a lot of the work we, we see, and you know, when we're doing research in this space, I see as, as, you know, the, the source state is often something like Twitter. And of course, you know, one of the big reasons for that, I, I would sort of guess would be that you kind of have this data that's just right there. And so you can do these fairly large scale, um, sort of sort of data collection and data analysis from that. But, you know, again, sort of the layman side, my, my sort of gut feeling about it is that that it's not unique to social media, many of these things. You know, people often say, well, and I think you can have improvements, face-to-face communication sometimes, but I think many of the things we see on social media probably carry over to the to the real world. And I even believe sometimes 
the social media side almost is like foreshadowing what's going to happen in the real world a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I know it's not in your paper. I don't think a lot, but I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. I mean, people are people, you know, there's design elements of social media that kind of dials up some aspects of human nature and maybe dial down kinder aspects of human nature, perhaps, but all these things exist in our natures and they exist whether we're online or not. So like the scarlet letter, you know, like classic book. I mean, that's about moral outrage. Everyone gets together, right? Panics about the the sin of adultery. I mean, if you want to see, you know, people who get whipped into a frenzy, just go to a PTA meeting, right? I mean, these are parents, they're concerned about threats. So there's like a pre-existing thing there. You're concerned about your kid. There's a stressful environment, other parents, budget cuts eternally for, you know, public schools. And then there's, you know, some kind of terrible thing happens. And then all of a sudden this parent cares about it. This other parent, I should care. Oh my goodness. And then, right. Angry emails, friendships broken, whatever people writing the board doesn't take much. Yeah. And that, that concern about your children's stuff, that that's ancient and deep. <laughs> kind of coming back to the, the sort of ubiquitous nature of it and, and, um, I guess you don't have really historical data here to sort of say if this is kind of getting worse and worse. I mean, obviously, we all kind of have this perception that this has been getting worse. Uh, but I mean, does any of the data kind of back that up? No data in this paper yet. We are are looking at it now, actually, of how uh, it could be getting worse, right? Moralizations increasing. Um, I think that, that, yeah, there's some there's additional trends that that are making this happening happen as well. I think like the breakdown of local communities, like the kind of Putnam stuff, bowling alone, right? If you don't have the kind of like civic local infrastructure to have these kind of like groups where we all feel like we belong because we're part of the same bowling team, right? Now we we don't have that. And so we ha- we all belong to the same kind of outraged mob, um, typically centered around politics. So I think there's some circumstantial evidence, but nothing that really nails it quite yet, but check back in a year. <laughs> okay. And so I guess um, I like to kind of finish on, on this question of, of, I know your paper talks about a few things, or at least talks about what we should be look, what kinds of things we should look at, maybe focus on if we're kind of looking at ways to maybe mitigate some of this or, or lower that temperature a little bit. So, so what, what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I know predicting things and all that is never, never a great idea, but. I mean, yeah, I think there's things that social media companies could do. I don't think it's within their incentives to do so, like getting people less engaged and less angry. Um, but personally, I think you can do things like use social media in a way that's not going to make you so afraid. Um, and that means selecting the times and places you use it so that you're less likely to get upset. And so, for example, right, there's a reason you don't have arguments with your spouse uh, late at night. You know, that saying like never go to bed angry. I think that's not not true because you should you should just go to bed because it's going to be better in the morning, because if you try to talk about when everyone's tired and stressed, it's going to go poorly. And so likewise, with social media, you like had a long day and you're stressed and you just want to like relax and rewind and then you like are sitting in bed which by the way is supposed to be the safest place in your home right like 
it should be something safe. And then you open your phone and you're like, terrible things happening. The world's ending, right? Like something's coming for your children. Like now there's no way you can get away from it, right? Um, and that's going to make you upset. If you don't send a frenzied tweet now, you're going to send one tomorrow once you process it. So I think select the time that you're using social media to be less afraid. Yeah. And it seems like there's kind of a mindset too, maybe that, you know, I mean, I mean, I know for my wife and I, we kind of joke around now a little bit when we're going to go turn on news or when it's doom scroll or something a little bit, we kind of consciously go, well, let's go into the outrage a little bit. But, uh, I don't know that that seems to help us a little bit to almost yeah. make a joke out of it and say, you know, face it head on this. We're going to look at some outrage now. Yeah. I mean, inoculation, right. There, there's a study that came out recently about pre-bunking. This is about misinformation, but I think the same thing applies to outrage. Right. If you know that people are out there, like the merchants of outrage, I forget what they're called. But if you know there's people out there who are making money off of getting you angry and upset, then I think you can kind of resist it a bit more, right? You're you're going in prepared. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that helps a little bit. To the point you originally when you first start started there talking about sort of the outrage industry or the the merchants of outrage. You know, and it, it seems like for now, our best solution is kind of individually, you know, kind of little introspection and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, do you think there's any structural things that could change? Is there some kind of an incentive structure we could maybe have to, to get these people to stop doing it? I mean, I guess it's not voting for them. It's not watching their shows. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, all those things would help, right? Voting and, and not watching their shows. And I mean, when Twitter's making money on ads, the more people are on it and they know that outrage goes viral. I know that virality makes you outraged, then it's difficult. But you know, you could imagine that people don't always want to be frenzied. Uh, so like Instagram, I think is a little less toxic or Facebook could be that way. You know, like how I use Facebook is just to look at pictures of kids and my friends kids and anyone someone posts like some kind of aggressive political meme i just ignore it and so it, if people are more motivated to do this and explicitly pursue it i think that could help right but again i guess that's more introspective yeah it's, it's hard to, you know it, we're, we're <laughs> a kind of social species and there's darkness within us and it's easy to kind of exploit that if you're if you're clever and you know know how people work right and it seems like you know, there don't need to be back bad actors, but there's also an opportunity for bad actors here as well. Yeah. And it only takes a couple, right? It only takes a couple of Alex Joneses to, you know, not only is he like increasing people's outrage by telling lies, but that people are upset about Alex Jones, right? And they're outraged. And so it's this like cycle, right? It only takes one bad actor. And then, uh, yeah. And then people are upset about people being upset about Alex Jones because it's infringing on rights. And then, you know, and then it's just flames all around. Right. There's a lot of these uh, these spirals, <laughs> down downward spirals. All right. Well, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you making the time to be on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Good luck with the episode. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And now it's time for our street outrage segment. In today's street outrage, we speak with Jeff. Back in the early 90s, you know, I knew a guy who was on very active in this pro-choice protest unit, for lack of a better term. 
And so there would be the anti or the pro-life unit, unit on the other side of the street and the pro-choice on the other side of the street, and they would escalate and they would try to zing the other team or where it, it, there was no consensus building. Right. Right. There was no trying to. Yeah, it was just fight, fight, fight. And so like, how, like, I don't even know. It's so exhausting to try to convince anybody of your viewpoint if they've got an opposing viewpoint and so it i think i've given up you know i was like wow i don't want that in my life you know we, and so i wanted to focus on other things you know yeah i try to do my citizen duty by voting or you know i'm volunteering for in scouting or i'm trying to do my actual job you know it was like trying to help with climate change or provide solutions for climate change in the long run of course it's very it's a little weak just because of the scale is so low it's one part of that solution though i mean it's It's one part of that solution so i tried so i tried to make that decision oh a while ago to to just try to be good to other people and and do my part in the and contribute in those ways and is is it enough probably not I, i don't know how to convince other people That is it for this episode of the Outrage Overload podcast. For links to everything we talked about on this episode, you can go to outrageoverload.net. That's also where you can find all my contact information. Everywhere in the world you can contact me. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, all of them. Mastodon, everywhere. And I really want to hear from you. So reach out. I really want to build a community. I'd love to hear where you think this should occur. Now we have a lot of fragmentation out there. I've got a Facebook group, which is kind of where I've started this, but maybe this happens on Discord. Tell me the platform you'd like to use. Okay, watch for a new episode coming soon.